Hello, it's Wednesday 29th of March. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will rewind the past 12 months back to 1st of April 2022, when borders reopened across much of the region, and ask, what have we learned? So, let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. wherever you are in the world and thanks for listening in so the past 12 months have just flown by haven't they hannah one year ago we were preparing for quarantine free travel to resume across most of southeast asia after the long pandemic travel shutout and the graduated reopenings that date that we mentioned hannah the first of april 2022 was an important milestone for the region in many ways at the airport gates and land borders began to open more freely and quarantine was dropped, which was the most important thing. This sort of really kick-started the recovery of travel and tourism across Southeast Asia. So over those past 12 months, what have we and what haven't we learned during that time? There's much to discuss, but to give us a bit of structure, Hannah and I have compiled a list of the 10 key travel takeaways in the region since the 1st of April 2022. But before we begin, Hannah, I guess we should probably take a brief look back to what actually happened one year ago and why it was so important. Where should we kick off? So let's start then with Cambodia. And, you know, Cambodia really doesn't get enough uh, plaudits for for what it did. And 1st of April 2022, Cambodia has fully opened um, to vaccinated travellers. It actually been fully reopened since late November um, 2021. So it's beaten the other Southeast Asian countries by miles, um, saying that, you know, international arrivals weren't in, in full flow. It was still, you know, very limited numbers, but they were open. Vietnam, Gary, what was going on there? Yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the head there, Hannah, when you said fully vaccinated, because that was what really was the context of this time last year. If we just sort of go back a little bit further, remember that the Omicron variant had taken hold in Southeast Asia just before Christmas 2021, so around about December 2021. And although a lot of countries at that time were talking about reopening, and some, Thailand and Singapore, had actually started that process, uh, Omicron put it all on the back on the back burner, and the first quarter of 2022 was relatively quiet. We saw governments talking a lot about trying to reopen, about moving into what was so-called an endemic phase. And that endemic phase meant that travel was going to be about fully vaccinated travelers. So as you say, Hannah, Vietnam had this sort of weird partial reopening uh, at the beginning where it was open to a handful of cities, tour groups only. Um, but then itself, it reopened kind of properly on the 15th of March 2022. But there were still some restrictions in place. A limited number of visa exemption countries. There were only 13 at the time. And you still had to purchase US, uh, sorry, 10,000 US dollar health insurance. There were COVID tests as well. There, there were various things that were going on. But the, the, I've noticed at the moment, the Vietnam media is saying that it was one of the first countries to reopen in Southeast Asia, which I guess, Hannah, is partly true, partly not true. All of this is kind of hype and hyperbole, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. I mean, partly true. Whenever I see all of these headlines saying, <laughs> the article saying, we're not doing very well, even though Vietnam was the first country in the region to reopen, I'm like, mm, well, Cambodia beat you to that, guys. Um, but they've got a point. Again, it's, it's one of those ones where it's far behind their neighbours in terms of receiving tourists. So, 
Yeah, but I guess the the big story, I guess, on the first of April last year was Singapore and Malaysia, wasn't yeah. it? That's kind of where where we focus quite a lot of our attention. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, you know, Singapore, and we talked this to death in uh, 2021, beginning of 2022, was all about the vaccinated travel lanes, the VTLs. Um, but from the 1st of April, they dropped that. They they dropped that on arrival test. Um, they reopened that land border with Malaysia, which is just so crucial, you know, not just for tourism, but for, you know, for, for living. You know, so many people would cross the border on a daily basis and still do to commute between jobs between Malaysia and Singapore. And, you know, that, that was an absolutely crucial land border for both countries to reopen for the economy. Um, I mean, Singapore, of course, being Singapore, they, they didn't just throw open the doors. Um, you had to be fully vaccinated, like you were saying, Gary, and that's key for everywhere, really. You had to be vaccinated. Um, you needed a negative PCR test before you left or a professionally administered um, antigen test. But compared to what it was, it was so much more relaxed, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And the same here in Malaysia from the 1st of April, as you mentioned there, that the, the border crossing with Singapore was reopened. Malaysia also opened its borders so that if you traveled into the country, you didn't have to do quarantine anymore. There were some still still some restrictions in, in place. I remember I actually left the country early April 2022 for the first time in two and a half years, went back to the UK. And to leave the country, didn't have to do any testing or anything like that, but did have to provide all my paperwork, a vaccination vaccination certificate, all that kind of thing. But by the time I actually returned, which was one month later, uh, Malaysia had dropped the requirement to take a test before you arrived back into the country. I think that was dropped on the 1st of May. So I guess I was quite lucky there. But yeah, as you say, Singapore and Malaysia are very intertwined in, in terms of the timing and the way that they approach reopening. Let's move across to the Philippines, Hannah. The Philippines is quite an interesting case because back in November 2021, it had announced quite a liberal reopening and then Omicron came and it shut that down for a while. Yeah, absolutely. It did that. So from the 1st of April, they were letting fully vaccinated international travelers back in without having to fill in, you know, an entry exemption document. Didn't even have to have an RT-PCR test, an antigen test within 24 hours of departure. Um, So it was a lot more relaxed as well. Um, And then Thailand, I mean, and how much... (laughs) I dread to think how many air minutes we've spent on, on talking about Thailand and test and go and Phuket sandbox. And God, it sounds like a, a throwback from the past now. But, you know, 1st of April, they still had this test and go in place, but you didn't need a pre-departure test. That was the, the change that they made as of the 1st of April. So they kind of eased requirements a little bit, but it wasn't until the 1st of May that actually they then cut that test and go scheme and, and cut the Phuket sandbox as well. Yeah, absolutely. Indonesia was also pretty complicated, wasn't it? And very dragged out. Um, Bali had been open technically since I think February 2022, but there had been no flights coming into the country. There was a lot of confusion about what the reasoning was for that. But on the April, on April the 1st, also in Indonesia, uh, things were made a lot more simple. There were still some restrictions again, but, but it became much more free to come in and out of the country. Yeah, exactly. And then they continued waiving that. Um, Laos, it wasn't open. It only opened early May, um, Brunei, 1st of August. Um, and in Myanmar, I mean, again, I mean, it was complicated, even more complicated because of Junta and everything else. But it reopened um, Yangon Airport on the 17th of April. But it was complex. It was messy. Quarantine, if you had a positive test on arrival, you needed mandatory 
health insurance, which actually they have only just dropped um, this week, <laughs> interestingly. Um, so that real hangover from a year ago. Um, so you can see, you know, 1st of April, I think we were probably dancing around with all of this news about the borders reopening, but actually it was still pretty limited. There is still a lot of hoops to jump through. It was not as easy as book your flight ticket and turn up. There were apps you needed to fill in, vaccination certificates you needed to bring along, testing before or maybe testing afterwards on arrival. A very different situation to where we are today. Yeah, there was. And if, if you extend that into the broader context of Asia Pacific, you know, we were we were talking, as you say, dancing around uh, reopening. But in, in parts of Northeast Asia, they, they were no nearer, no closer to reopening. Japan was still closed and was going to be until October. Hong Kong and Taiwan, the same. If you go back to China one year ago, it was just the very beginning of that very controversial and very, very long lockdown in Shanghai, which really signaled the, the intensifying of COVID zero in China which didn't really uh, discontinue until December last year. So across the region was a very, very different picture than what we were going through here in Southeast Asia. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you're sat listening to this in Europe or sat listening to this in North America, it just feels very strange, right, to to hear about that, knowing that you had so many freedoms. And it's interesting when I meet, you know, I, I have quite a few American colleagues for my Venture Travel Trade Association role, and I, I think they, they don't really particularly around mask wearing, I know we're talking about entry requirements, but even if you think about mask wearing, this is something that's just very normalized in Asia now, in general, even if you don't necessarily have to wear them. Um, it doesn't really bother people. Um, but Europeans, North American travelers, they come here and it's just something they find like very <laughs> aggressively in their face, very uncomfortable about. Um, and it just for that, that, that just really demonstrates to me just these two Two completely different worlds, two completely different approaches to handling COVID. Yeah, and, and, and the concept of reopening as well, very, very different in, in much of the rest of the world, particularly in Europe and North America. So we said this before, Hannah, you know, when the borders were closed here in Southeast Asia, they stayed closed more or less. There were some exemptions, but not very many. They stayed closed for about two years. But that was very, very different in Europe and North America, which did reopen and close and reopen and close. They did have summer seasons during 2020 and 2021, which is something we just didn't have in Southeast Asia. And, you know, this is this really, if you go back a year ago, when you were looking at the figures in terms of airline capacity, visitor numbers, they were so far behind in Southeast Asia and Asia Pacific in general, because the region was closed, very, very different to, to the Western Hemisphere, where travel was continuing through most of the, the pandemic era. Yeah. Absolutely. So now we've done this kind of roundup and refreshed your, your, your memory, happily or unhappily, I suppose, of, of, of where we were in 1st of April. Let's, let's crack on then and, and talk about what have we learned um, from these last 12 months of reopening. Gary, what's your take? What's, what's our, our first learning? Yeah, I think the first learning, Hannah, is something that we actually talked about a year ago. It was is that Thailand is Southeast Asia's tourism central. We expected this to happen. We expected that flights would go back in bigger numbers to Thailand. Travelers from around the world would graduate back to Thailand. I think we also said at the time that we expected Bali to, to kick off. And to be fair, I think that's happened. You know, Thailand and Bali have definitely proved to be the holiday-making destinations of choice in our region. And although the Tourism Authority of Thailand makes some strange prognostications at time, lots of forecasts, lots of different policies and plans and lots of different promotions. Uh, the appeal of Thailand is enduring. And you know, that really has shown through. And I think at the moment is showing through even more. You're looking at the, the numbers there over recent months, 
are really, really strong. Took a while to rebuild, but you know there are forecasts this year of 20 plus million, even up to 27 million tourists this year. That's a pretty good recovery on 2019. I would say that they'll get much closer to to their figures of 2019 than any other country in the region. What would you say? Yeah, agreed. I mean, it's interesting because if you look at the air traffic recovery um, from March, and this is this OAG data that we were looking at again last week. Again, I'll drop the link in the show notes. Um, Thailand is still down 30% of its um, seat capacity. Um, so it's actually, it's, it's only at 69% versus 2019. Um, and when you're looking at like that, it's actually one of the worst um, recovering markets out of Southeast Asia. So somewhere like Indonesia is 80% versus 2019, Vietnam 104%. They've exceeded 2019 levels, um, mainly driven by domestic. Um, so when you look at it from that way and think, oh, actually, probably a lot of this is down to the fact that um, those air routes between China haven't yet been added in. We know they're going to be added back in quite soon, probably. Um, yeah, Thailand's really got that opportunity to pick up speed. And, you know, yes, we're always a little bit cynical around those forecasts. But they announced that they hit, what, 5.6 million um, international arrivals so far this quarter. Um, and they expect to hit 6 million. That's not bad. Right? 6 million. And China only really started to return probably from February onwards, Rangari. Um, yeah, I would agree. And, and haven't really returned in any numbers yet. Yeah. I think that's a great start to the year. I would agree with that. I think Thailand is is flying at the moment and, and will continue to do so. Which brings us to number two, Hannah, which I think is a very, very important point. Thailand is doing well. It's a bit patchier across the region, but competition to attract tourists is definitely intensifying right now. One year later from the reopenings, I think you're really, really starting to see countries are really fighting hard for, for travelers and tourists. Yeah, I mean, like I said, ITB Berlin, a huge presence from Southeast Asia. Thailand, I mean, dominating because they had their own hall, but all of the other markets were there one way or another. Um, and, you know, they, when you look at their strategies, they're competing kind of along similar lines. Right now, there's a lot of talk around making the most of the culture, the cultural heritage um, of the countries. There's a lot around trying to attract the kind of maximized soft power. So in Thailand has its five Fs, which if I can remember are films, festival, fashion, food, and fights. Um, right, so they, they really see all of that as being leverage. Um, so I think what tourism boards have got to do now is to really find that, that USP, that unique selling point that's going to make them different from the rest, but also re-examine things like entry policies and where making it easier to, to get in. You know, Thailand is easy for Chinese travelers to get in. It's a visa on arrival. Malaysia is not so easy. Other countries are not so easy. Um, so countries have really got to take a hard look, I think, at those accepted strategies and policies that they had pre-pandemic and revitalize them and rejuvenate them if they, they want to come out with uh, any decent kind of arrival numbers this year. Yeah, 100% agree with that. There's there's a lot of talk in the region. You, you see in the media that, you know, perhaps the, the recovery yet from China hasn't been as fast as perhaps some people were expecting. And that's no surprise whatsoever. You know, China is a huge, complex tourism machine. And to reopen it within two months was never going to be possible. But I do think we're going to start to see a lot more Chinese tra travelers coming into the region, particularly for the May holiday this year, but definitely in the second half of the year. 
And, you know, as you said, Hannah, it, it will be a case of how easy the destinations make it for Chinese travelers to arrive, to travel and to enjoy what they want to do. It's That's still going to be a, um, a journey of learning, I think, for many many countries. But you do get the sense in some countries they're not as well prepared as others. And, you know, that will probably show in the second half of the year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think particularly in those countries where there isn't that centralized um, tourism board, um, like countries like Cambodia or um, Laos, for example, where they don't have that one authority who are going out and coordinating all of those promotions um, worldwide. And they're going to just struggle and fall behind those peers who do have those marketing offices globally and can put together like this, this very targeted campaign. Yep. So that's our first two takeaways. One is that Thailand is our tourism central. And number two is that competition is intensifying. Number three, this is one of your picks, Hannah. Tell us more. Yeah. I mean, and this is the fact that interregional flight capacities still aren't what they are. Um, despite, you know, the fact, and we, we've said this again and again, that, you know, ASEAN into ASEAN is the largest source market into one another. And that then begged the whole question when they were talking about this intra-ASEAN travel corridor, why they just didn't implement it and perhaps tourism would be in a, a much stronger place than it is now. But that's a whole other story, right? Um, but we're still seeing you know, the, the frequencies, particularly on routes, not returning. I would say that I think a lot of the routes are back. But for example, you know, when I was flying to um, Siem Reap, Last week, Kuala Lumpur to Siem Reap, there's only flights, I think, three or four times a week um, with Air Asia at a, a hideous time of uh, 6.45 a.m. Um, out and like 8.30 a.m. back. And that's it. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, there would have been so much more choice. The connections are there and they, we are seeing, you know, more interesting stories about routes that didn't really exist before um, looking at perhaps being launched. So ones between Cambodia and Indonesia, for example, that was in the news last week that Asia is thinking about opening that up. It's still that that's going to hold recovery back. Yeah, totally agree. There are some interesting stories about uh, new flight routes as well and new flight services. This week, there's the announcement by Emirates that it's launching its first A380 flight into Bali, which is particularly interesting. Mm. Um, but this moves into our number four point, Hannah, which is also one of your choices. And this, I think, is a very interesting one because this is actually about air capacities, but not particularly direct air, air capacities. Tell us a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what the pandemic has made us realize, and I think those countries as well, there's the smaller ones, Cambodia, Laos, how dependent they are on their neighbor's aviation capacity to recover. Um, you know, there are very few um, direct international flights into Laos, certainly, into Cambodia, a lot from China, quite limited numbers um, from outside of Southeast Asia and, and the region. But you know, these countries are so dependent on that through traffic from Thailand, from Vietnam, particularly as it also comes back to the fact that they're not particularly for leisure seen as mono countries, um, itineraries. They're normally pulled together with uh, you know the go visit Indochina um, type thing. Um, but they've been so limited in the number of visitors they can get until those flight capacities have been building back up into Bangkok, until they've been building back up into Vietnam. And now they're seeing it. Now, of course, the Laos-China railway is, is going to change that completely um, for, uh, for Laos now that they're going to reopen the train. Well, now that they're going to open 
passenger services to be able to go directly from China to Laos. Um, but I think they're really waking up to the fact that they are very, very dependent on their neighbours. Yeah, absolutely. Nothing to add to that. We have seen quite a lot of land land tourism, haven't we? Land border crossings. Mm. Um, we were talking about Thailand earlier. That, that's also benefited from its kind of geographical location and quite a lot of cross-border um, travel, as well as the flight uh, services. But yeah, definitely something to watch. Uh, I think that's a very good point. So moving on then, and this is one of your choices, Gary, um, that high quality tourism is selectively applied. Tell us more. I think that says it all, really. There was a lot of discussion, wasn't there, a year ago about tourism was going to be done differently. We were going to be more sustainably minded, more community impact minded. And a lot of uh, politicians particularly, but also tourism board officials were talking about this high quality, high spend, high yield model of tourism never really fully codifying what it meant, never really actually saying much more beyond the fact that it was just a way to to bring more money into a country. But it's sort of dissipated a little bit over the last year, I think, you know, particularly in countries that we're talking about this, like Thailand, also in Bali, you know, that's got back to, to numbers-based tourism, you know, chasing the numbers, chasing volumes, chasing revenues through volumes, you know, that's what tourism does. But the actual concept of high quality high-yield, high-spend tourism, to me, has sort of disappeared off the radar a little bit. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it comes down to, they never, like you say, they never really defined what is high-quality tourism. Is that just the um, direct economic impact that they're bringing, i.e. they're big spenders and they are, you know, going to stay in the five-star hotels and spend more that way? Um, or should it rather be, and I think Stuart MacDonald has argued this, um, before it should be really beyond the what what are they contributing to society how are they improving that can it be measured in that that the intangible benefits i suppose that tourism provides to those communities in those way they're quality tourists so he would argue that backpackers are quality tourists which is something that um, tourism boards definitely uh, when they when they are talking about high quality tourists i shouldn't imagine that backpackers are at the top of that list yeah. Okay. So that's number five. That's one poorly defined uh, tourism buzzword, which is high quality. Let's move to another set, and that's sustainable ecotourism and green travel. Again, pretty poorly defined, but talked about a lot. Where are we going with those? Yeah. Exactly. And these are just the other buzzword. You know, and they were often in the same kind of sentence: high quality tourism. We're all going to be about sustainability and. I would say that they haven't disappeared. Governments are still talking about them. But again, they're not really defining them. And I may be painting with a, quite a broad brush because there are, of course, exceptions. You know, countries like Singapore. Um, so Singapore, for example, is talking very much about, you know, aims to become uh, a net zero tourism destination. They got certified by, I think, GSTC as the first sustainable destination, whatever that actually means. But you do get the feeling that it is it is for show and very much as we keep saying, if they are chasing these higher numbers, how does that sit? How does that square with this aim of being a, a more sustainable destination? And again, of course, sustainable is not just environment, though I think that that's very much interpreted that way a lot by destinations. It can also be sustainable as in providing that economic opportunities for people, which could mean you know, that geographical dispersion throughout the country. But we are not really seeing a huge effort, I'd say, 
um, from destinations right now to to go in that direction either. I mean, you've got Indonesia, which you know, has its five super priority destinations, which are you know trying to attract tourists beyond just Bali. But there's a lot more to be done, I would say, in terms of this. Yeah, I would agree. I think one thing that really needs to happen is to move away from this term sustainable and sustainability because it's an umbrella term which is not just poorly defined. It actually gives a little bit too much leverage, a little bit too much leeway uh, for greenwashing and also for just actions that don't actually deliver. You mentioned there that Singapore is using the term net zero. We sometimes see decarbonized in terms of visitor economies. Now, those are a little bit more precise and they actually set a kind of framework for where the industry can go. I don't think the industry is being helped by using terms like sustainable because it's just too loosely applied. I think one of the things that we've learned perhaps in the consumer goods economy is it doesn't really get used at all now. Everything is very specifically targeted in terms of the impact, um, in terms of consumerism, in terms of products, in terms of natural resources, in terms of the environment, in terms of community impacts not really using this umbrella term, which doesn't really define the sort of direction of travel. And I think that would be a help just to get rid of that term sustainable and just be a bit more precise. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. So next learning, and this is one from you, Gary, it's around airports. Yeah, I think one of the things that we're starting to see as we uh, as, as volumes increase, travel volumes both domestically and internationally, is that many airports in our region just didn't invest enough during the pandemic to to alleviate some of the problems that were coming. If, if you remember last summer, Hannah, we were kind of crowing in the region a little bit when we were looking at what was happening in Europe, at the top airports there in North America, even in Australia. You know, there was huge queues, massive long queues, luggage going astray, delays, flight cancellations, simply because capacity at airports wasn't able to deal with the, with the demand for travel. We didn't really have that problem in Southeast Asia because the return the, the return of travel was a bit slower. I would say probably the only, inevitably, the only airport in the region that seems to have forecast and, and planned ahead perceptibly is, is Changi. It seems to understand over a longer period of time what demand volumes are going to be. We talked last week on the podcast, Hannah, about KLIA here in Malaysia. It's in a terrible state. You know, there's a lot of problems there. Very little F&B. The train between terminals isn't working. Long queues. It really does. It, it really is looking very, very tired and, and very, very underinvested. And other airports around the region are, are showing the same. And I think as we go into this second half of the year, when there's a greater recoupling between Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia, when we see more Koreans, more Japanese, more Chinese, Hong Kong, Taiwanese, Australians, you know, traveling in and out of the region. You know, inevitably, there's going to be more pressure on airports. And we may start to see that, you know, some of those problems that happened last year in other parts of the world are, are going to happen here. Yeah, I, I think that that could well happen. And I don't have much more to add other than having now flown out of KLIA many times this year so far. It's it's lacking. It's really, it's it's really lacking in terms of Southeast Asian airports, just airports internationally. And, you know, you, you can think, oh, well, it was such a waste. Why didn't they use those couple of years whilst everything was closed to, you know, really get one and really revamp things? But I guess there was that uncertainty, wasn't it? And um, people didn't want to make that investment then when they didn't know when the returns would come back. 
Yep, and it just means that you're playing catch up because the investment will get put in place now. Three years later, means that the you know the benefits will be will be further down the line. So let's move on to number eight, Hannah. And this is one of your picks, and this is a good one as well. And this is about the the, the focus on domestic tourism, which obviously was so important during the pandemic. Perhaps a little bit less so now. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, you know, we we've been talking about this a lot on the podcast um, for the last couple of years, and how we were wondering with the reopening how is that going to impact domestic tourism? Because like you said, you know, that was what kept the tourism industry afloat when borders were closed. Governments were investing money into schemes um, to, you know, incentivize domestic travel. And largely, um, these have kind of disappeared. I mean, I would say that there is a slightly more interesting product than there was um, before for domestic tourism. And that, you know, exploring your own backyard has increase that number of, of slightly different kind of tourism offerings that there were. There are still some countries who are focusing on it. I mean, Indonesia is not really chasing the international market, to be honest. A lot of the development for the five super priority destinations is also geared towards domestic tourism. And there is a lot of talk in the Indonesian media about, hey, well, actually, we've got such a huge population. Um, let's take advantage of it. You know, they this year, I think they expect over 1 billion domestic trips. They've got the volume there. Um, Thailand is still, you know, they've, they've got their, we travel together, um, domestic travel subsidy scheme, and they've just rolled that out, I think a few weeks ago and all snapped up as well. So there, there is still that recognition, even in Thailand, which like we're saying is, you know, the forerunner in, in doing well for tourism in the region right now, there is still a recognition there that not all segments are receiving back those international travelers, but I'd say in other destinations, um, you know, Malaysia, I, I don't see a huge amount going on here um, to encourage people to travel domestically. Singapore, well, obviously, I think that's, that's pretty much uh, gone now, isn't it, now that they can travel overseas. But there is still that gap. There is that gap between what international travelers were and what they are now. And how can you get domestic travelers to try and bridge that to a certain extent? Yeah, that's a good point. There's a good call on Indonesia as well. I think they did say, didn't they, to be fair to them, about a year ago that they were looking going forward to generate, I think it was around 60% of tourism revenue in future from the from the domestic market. I mean, not only is Indonesia a huge population, it's the world's fourth most populous country. It's almost sort of continental in size, isn't it? it it's like traveling through different countries because you know there's so many different islands that you have to travel between uh, to enjoy domestic travel experiences. It almost feels like traveling overseas anyway when you're when you're traveling between different locations in Indi- Indonesia. And so much of it is untapped. Uh, there are huge opportunities there for domestic tourism. And, and it's good to see that they're actually plowing ahead with that, investing in the right areas and, and really trying to encourage the villages, the tourists and the business itself, the tourism business itself, to get on board with that. Because as you say, in some other countries, there just doesn't seem to be any coordinated effort to to develop what, you know, domestic tourism wasn't just a, a short-term panacea to a specific problem. It is, it is a way to actually solve a lot of other problems in future. Um, but that seems to have gone wayside um, in this just huge desire to attract, to attract back international visitors. So number nine, um, manpower. And I think what we've really learned over this last year that the manpower crisis, you know, we were talking about, you know, manpower shortages last year. That's still the case now. I mean, I would argue that it, perhaps it is slightly less severe now than it was. But, you know, scrolling through my, my social media feeds, 
I'm seeing adverts every day from tour operators looking for, you know, travel agent staff, guiding staff, hotels looking front of house staff. It's still there. And of course, that also limits capacities. It limits the airports. You need to have the the border control stuff in. You need to have the luggage handler stuff in. You need to basically every, every vertical um, is impacted by this. And it's slowly recovering, but it's still there. Yep. And, and, and a global problem. I mean, we knew this was coming and, you know, a lot of people were talking about this one year, but it's one year ago, but it's only really over the past year as tourism demand has increased that you can start to see where the holes and where the gaps are. And as you said, Hannah, people are trying to rebuild or, or even new startup businesses in the industry, which we've seen quite a lot of, you know, they're all looking for, for staff at the moment doesn't look as though there's any immediate solution to this. There have been a lot of problems in terms of uh, Im- immigration flows, once again, visa permissions in some countries in the region. But that does seem to start to be getting sorted out right now. I guess the, the big issue really, isn't it? The elephant in the room is just how appealing is, is a career in future in the travel and tourism industry after what happened over those two years. And I think overcoming that obstacle is something that maybe the industry is still finding a little bit difficult to do. Yeah, I was just about to say that. I think it's about that and and compensation. Um, For far too long, tourism workers have been paid far too little. You know, now they've realized that they can make a better salary elsewhere. So, of course, that has other implications in terms of costs and consumers paying more, um, but paying more for a fairer fairer wage. Um, So, yeah, lots of adjustments to be done. Yep. So that brings us to our 10th and final takeaway, Hannah. We've been talking about air capacities. We've been talking about cross-border travel. But I think, and this is kind of the the train nerd in me, is looking ahead a little bit further and thinking that rail travel is going to be a real trend to watch for the rest of this decade and particularly into the next decade. I think there's been a huge realization that domestic and internet and, and cross-border rail networks in our region are insufficient and there is going to be demand for this one of the things i think the pandemic uh, taught us is that people do like to travel across across land whether that's driving themselves whether that's taking trains and there's a lot of investment in rail technology a lot of that is coming from china some of it will come from japan some of it may even come from india but as you referred to earlier, Hannah, you know, that, Lao, that China-Laos train, I think, really is set in motion across the region. This idea that cross-border rail uh, travel is going to be a way of the future, not just for sustainability, not just because it is probably cleaner than air travel. But I think that th- there will be demand for it. I think it's what people are going to want. And I think that's something that we've been slightly behind in the region before. There are rail routes across the region. There are quite a lot of them. But Thailand seems to have taken this on board. You know, it's opened that brand new... Uh, rail station in in Bangkok, the, the the biggest in the region, to to kind of reset a lot of its longer haul rail trips. I think we're going to see much much more of this uh, in the coming weeks and months. And of course, we have the the first high speed rail train, uh, which will open later this year in Indonesia. That's a lot. That's going to create a lot of interest, going to generate a lot of tourism interest, a lot of media interest, and I'm pretty sure it's going to it's going to galvanize governments to want their own version. So. Uh, watch this space on rail travel. Yeah, absolutely. I think you went into that more with uh, James Clark on a podcast a few weeks ago, right? Yeah, we did. We looked at some of the projects that are currently being vested or that are being built right now, and then some of those that are being proposed right now. It seems to be every day, and James is great at this. And if you ever read his Future Southeast Asia 
newsletter, he really tracks all the new proposals for rail routes across the region, and they're coming out frequently at the moment. They all need financing, they all need construction, they all take time, um, but they wouldn't be proposed in the first place if governments didn't think that there was going to be demand to use them. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings the show to a close for this week. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, and as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today, but we'll be back next week to talk more Southeast Asian travel and tourism with you then.